Right, the rest of you in here can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can look in the bulletin there. The, the scripture passage is printed there. wonder um, if you can remember playing the game MASH from your childhood. I asked my kids this week and they, uh, they confirmed that this is still a game that people play. One of my kids was like, yeah, Dad, everyone's going to know what you're talking about. So, okay, so you know what I'm talking about. You know about MASH. Uh, the, the idea is that, you know, each person creates categories on a piece of paper, like uh, where you'll live, who you'll marry, what job you'll have, how many kids you'll have, and then you have, like, three answers for each of these categories. I, I guess, technically, it's, like, two that you would want to happen and then one that you wouldn't want to happen. And you kind of fill out each of those categories. And the other person, either by making tally marks or, or swirls on the paper, basically gets to randomly... Um, create this snapshot of your life. And so the fun of the game is at the end you can say, all right, um, okay, so here's, here's your future. Here's a snapshot. You're going to live in Pittsburgh. Um, you're going to be married to Susie. You're going to have seven kids and you're going to be a teacher. And you just sort of like get this futuristic snapshot of like, okay, that's what my life might look like. If someone took a snapshot of your life right now, what would that snapshot say about you? And, and beyond the basics of like, okay, here I am maybe living that out now. Beyond the basics of like if you're married or kids or not and what job you do or where you go to school. Um, maybe at a deeper level, uh, what would that snapshot of your life say about what you really value? About what you really live for? About what your priorities are? Uh, if I could put it in, in these terms, um, if you think about that snapshot, what kingdom would it, would it show that you're living for? Kingdom of God or kingdom of self? Um, we're starting a series in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is going to give us a snapshot of what the life of the Christian ought to look like. And this is probably the most famous teaching that Jesus ever gave. It's found in Matthew's Gospel. And in this sermon, we're going to see a very beautiful, yet very upside-down description of what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. So with this in mind, let me read for us Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And this is what we need most right now is to hear from you. And um, I, I pray you'd bless the preaching of your word, that we might know you in a way that we don't yet know you. And so, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Uh, one of the movies that I watched on repeat as a kid was uh, The Karate Kid. Uh, it's made a reappearance. Uh, it's been remade, which is amazing. But uh, The Karate Kid is about a kid named Daniel LaRusso. Um, who moves uh, with his mother into a new neighborhood in Los Angeles and he starts getting bullied. And so um, in order to sort of combat the bullies, he starts taking karate. And he starts taking karate uh, from uh, Mr. Miyagi. Uh, Mr. Miyagi is incredible. He's um, a man of few words. He's quiet. He's wise. He's really strong. Um, and his method of teaching karate is completely upside down from all the different dojos in town. Uh, in fact, the, the, the one-liner sort of subtitle of the movie on the front cover says, he taught him the secret to karate lies in the mind and the heart, not in the hands. This was his philosophy. And so Mr. Miyagi, if you remember, if you've seen the movie, we would have um, Daniel do all kinds of these like really bizarre menial tasks and chores around his house. And Daniel just couldn't figure it out. He would have him sand the floor where he was down on his hands and knees and he was sanding the floor in Mr. Miyagi's house. He'd have him um, uh, wax on and wax off with the old car that was in the driveway. Daniel was tasked to wax on and wax off. He'd have him paint the fence, uh, the up and down motion, painting the fence over and over again. And in the movie, Daniel gets so frustrated because he doesn't understand what he's doing. This is not what other dojos are doing. This is not what the other kids in the neighborhood learning karate are doing. It made no sense to him. It was so upside down. But this way of teaching, if you've seen the movie, this, this way of karate, it ended up making Daniel great, even though it seemed crazy. Uh, throughout this sermon, Jesus is going to tell us things that might seem crazy when we first hear them. Um, everything that he's going to tell us throughout the Sermon on the Mount about what our character ought to look like, um, what to do with our anger, what anger is really all about, how to think about our money, how to handle our lust how to deal with our enemies, how to think about our anxiety. Um, all this is going to seem so upside down compared to sort of what our natural default mode of dealing with these things might be. But also it's going to seem upside down compared to the world around us. We hear a very different message with these things in our Monday through Saturday life. And so this morning, think about this as a bit of an introduction into the way, into the way of Jesus. And so three headings this morning, I want us to think about this passage First, we're going to look at an intro to the way. Secondly, we're going to look at the upside-downness of the way. And third, we're going to look at the one leading the way. So first, introduction to the way. Verses 1 and 2 of our passage are sort of an introduction to the entire Sermon on the Mount. And it would be really easy to gloss over, um, but it actually tells us something about Jesus right off the bat. Look at verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, so the, the way of Jesus, it's upside down from the beginning. First, you notice that there's crowds here. Um, all right, so what would the modern day preacher do if he saw a crowd? He would run to the crowd, right? He would run to the crowd, the modern day preacher, because that means fame and uh, people to have a voice with, and it means tithe dollars. And it means influence and platform and all those like kind of cringy words that we don't like to associate uh, with modern day preachers. What did Jesus do? Didn't run to the crowds. He withdrew to the mountain. Commentators point out that Jesus is seen withdrawing, um, doing two things in the Gospels. One is that he withdraws to pray. 
And secondly, he withdraws to be with his disciples. Um, He was not beholden to the crowds. He often taught crowds. Large crowds would gather. um, And a crowd would eventually gather in this Sermon on the Mount. But his primary focus was not on trying to draw a large crowd. Um, Think about uh, the crowds that have gathered for Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. Um, Her concert ticket sales in North America are projected to reach 2.2 billion dollars. There are 68 shows in the U.S. with an average attendance of 72,459. So that means almost 5 million people will attend her concerts on this tour. Um, And that's not even touching on the upcoming movie theater release of her concert which pre-order sales through AMC have already broken every single record that AMC had for pre-order sales in the past, and they just went on sale. Um, Taylor Swift knows how to draw a crowd. What do we see Jesus doing when a crowd gathers? In this very upside-down way, he withdraws to the mountain to be with his disciples. And so that's the second thing by way of introduction we want to see about the Sermon on the Mount That he was with his disciples. Jesus had disciples. These were his learners. Uh, He was a teacher. They were his learners. They would sit at his feet. Um, They were his friends. They were the few that he walked closely with. Um, The pattern of Jesus was to prioritize very quietly just a few. And then to equip them and send them out to do the work of ministry. Um, Jesus would have driven modern day marketers and influencers crazy. Because he was doing the opposite of what you should do. He would slow down retreat, be in deep relationship with a few, pouring into a few, and then sending out his disciples. So we see the crowns, the disciples. Third thing by way of introduction that we should notice about the way is that Jesus teaches. He teaches. He didn't just model the way. He did. He modeled it perfectly. And and you see that throughout the Gospels. Um, He did amazing miracles, all kinds of amazing things, but he also taught He taught the way. Um, The sermon that he's about to teach, again, it's primarily to his disciples. If you think about rows of people sitting there listening to him, in the front row would be the disciples. Now, as this goes on, that crowd's going to fill up, and eventually he'll be teaching to everybody. But the text highlights the fact that he's sitting. You may have noticed that. Um, This would have been standard Jewish practice for a rabbi to sit while he teaches. So he's showing himself to be a rabbi here. And he's showing himself to teach authoritatively. They're actually going to make note of this at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So he's he's teaching in the way that they would understand, but he's doing so very authoritatively in a new way, where one of the refrains you'll hear a lot in this sermon is, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He teaches authoritatively. Just a few things to note by way of introduction. Avoids the crowd, goes up on the mountain, pours into his disciples, and he teaches authoritatively. This is the introduction to the way, which is very consistent with the way itself. Let's look at the second heading, the upside-downness of the way. And I've used that word probably like eight times already this morning. Uh, But it really is key to understanding this teaching. Uh, Verses 3 through 12 are going to give us what are called the Beatitudes, which come from this Latin word uh, that means blessed, uh, which could also be translated as happy. Um, So this is the happy life. In Jesus that we're about to look at, which stands in contrast to our own default way of thinking about happiness, to the way of, ways of the world, the ways of the world thinks about happiness around us. Um, and so we're just going to kind of go through um, each of these beatitudes briefly, and you can kind of cut them in half. The first half deals with our relationship with God, 
And the second half deals with our relationship with others. So let's look at this first half in our relationship with God. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, Okay, so to be poor in spirit means to own the fact that you are spiritually bankrupt. Um, If you've ever been through the process of buying a home, or maybe you had a friend or a family member that went through that process... That's one of the most like, personally invasive things that you can go through, buying a house. Um, the, the, the bank basically has to do their due diligence um, on to, uh, to see whether or not you can pay for this house. Can this person actually buy this house? And so they look through like all your old pay stubs and your bank account statements for, to see how much money's been in the bank for how long. They'll look through tax records. There is no stone that's unturned in this process And the whole point of that mortgage process is to answer the question, can this person afford to pay for the house? Do they have what it takes to buy this house? That's the question. To be poor in spirit is to own the fact that you do not have what it takes to buy your way into the kingdom of God by your good works or by anything at all. That you have no bargaining power. Um, that your being included in the kingdom of God is only because God has decided to be gracious to you. And if you really can't own this, here's the upside down logic of the kingdom of God. If you can own the fact that you don't have what it takes to get in, it says yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's how you get in. That's the first beatitude. The next one, look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does it mean to mourn here? It means to be brokenhearted over our own sin, over our own rebellion against God, over the brokenness of the world. Some of the things that we prayed for this morning. Um, and you can see how these Beatitudes are connected. They kind of build on each other where this, this um, owning your spiritual bankruptcy, being poor in spirit, leads to your mourning. Leads to a true sense of sadness that this is not the way it should be. Um, what are we to mourn? Uh, we're to mourn things like our short temper with our kids. Or the way in which we can default into gossiping and speaking poorly about people with our roommate. Uh, or when we see a kid at school that is always excluded and doesn't really have any friends and just seems really lonely. We're to mourn about those things. And, and to do that it requires that we see the brokenness of the world honestly and we not try to sort of just pretend that it's always happy all the time. But there's a lot of really hard realities around us. We have to face it honestly. But what's the comfort? It says, for they shall be comforted. The comfort is that Jesus has said, by his very coming to live and dwell among us, that um, those things you're mourning now um, have a, a limited amount of time on them. That this will not be the way it's going to be forever. That there will be a day where those things you're mourning will be no more where we will no longer sin because we'll be made fully new in Jesus, where the lonely one will be fully included in the community of God's people. And so the hope, the promise, is that we will be comforted. Look at the next one, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? Jesus is the perfect picture of meekness. He's a perfect picture of all of these. Um, he's a perfect picture of meekness. And um, a guy named Frederick Bruner points out that especially when Jesus was on trial before the cross. Listen to what, what Bruner says about this. He says, the overall impression of Jesus on trial is an impression of poise. It is the poise of not having to assert oneself. If you've ever read those accounts before of Jesus when he's on trial, 
where he could honestly, legitimately, justly defend himself and say what he was doing in the face of their lies and untruths, and he's silent. He's silent. He does not assert himself where he could. This is an attitude of meekness. Um, maybe defining the opposite can help us understand more of what meekness is. Um, and David Brooks wrote a, a book called The Road to Character a few years ago, and he talks about um, our, our, the, the, the kind of default ways we're, we're prone to communicate, especially online and over social media. He says, social media encourages a broadcasting personality. Our natural bent is to seek social approval and fear exclusion. Social networking technology allows us to spend our time engaged in hyper-competitive struggle for attention, for victories and the currency of likes. He says, people are given more occasions to be self-promoters, to embrace the characteristics of celebrity, to manage their own image, to Snapchat out their selfies in ways that they hope will impress and please the world. He says, this technology creates a culture in which people turn into little brand managers using Facebook and Twitter and text messages and Instagram to create a falsely upbeat, slightly over-exuberant external self that can be famous first in a small sphere, then with luck in a large one. The manager of this self measures success by the flow of responses it gets. The social media maven spends his or her time creating a self-caricature, a much happier and more photogenic version of real life. People subtly start comparing themselves to other people's highlight reels, and of course, they feel inferior. Um, And this is all around us, not just on social media. Um, Sometimes we feel like we have to assert ourselves about everything all the time, or maybe we're not staying relevant. Um, There's a fear that we can associate behind this idea of being meek, and the fear is this. If I'm meek, then I won't get recognized, and I won't get what I deserve. Um, At stake sometimes can be this lack of recognition or this lack of getting what we deserve. But look at the promise back in the text in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, this, This attribute of meekness, which shows itself in humility and gentleness and not having to assert your own greatness, of not making a case for why you're the best or why you're right or why other people are wrong, it results in you inheriting the earth. Blessed are the meek. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, Years ago, I did a running race in the Red River Gorge in Kentucky. It was um, 13 miles of really steep downhill into this gorge. Um, And then you would cross a river, like a shallow river, and then you go up the steep hill on the other side. I think it did that like seven times up and down, back through the gorge. It almost killed me. It was the hardest race I've ever done. Um, Around mile 10 in this race... I was just on the brink of totally bonking, completely out of energy reserves inside of me. I felt like I had nothing left. I was starving. I was exhausted. And in my mind, I started hallucinating about things like cheeseburgers and like donuts and candy and really sweet things. And I was on the portion of the trail. I remember this distinctly. I was kind of in these woods where I was all alone. There were no runners around me. And um, and I I was at the end. Um, but I got out into this clearing and there was a, there was a table uh, with volunteers at this table. And on this table were like all things sweet and sugary. They had like Gatorade and candy and cookies and all the sweets. And I just remember running over to this table starving. And I just started devouring what was on the table. And I, I got emotional with the volunteers who were standing there because I was, I was at the end of myself so hungry, so desperate. And it was right what I need, right what I needed just when I needed it. 
Uh, This is the type of hunger that Jesus is talking about here. Do you hunger for Jesus and His righteousness? Um, There are so many other things in our lives that we think will fill us up and satisfy us. And so rather than feasting on Jesus and His righteousness, we settle for lesser things. Um, And that can be different for everyone. Maybe it's, you know, a little more money in the bank account will be the thing that satisfies us. Once we reach a certain goal, then we'll be good. Uh, Maybe it's a certain job. Once we sort of finish schooling, get into this job, then we'll be satisfied. Or maybe it's something different. Maybe it's, you know, the, the images on a screen that you just feel like you can't stop looking at, that you feel like just a couple more clicks will satisfy you. Jesus is saying that He alone is the one who can satisfy you. And so this is how He starts the Beatitudes, by speaking into our relationship with God. And then He transitions to our relationship with others. And you see this in verses 7 through 12. Look at verse 7. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Um, It's interesting that as He moves into our, our ways of relating with each other, He starts by talking about mercy. He doesn't say... Um, Tell others, go, go out and as my people go out and tell others that they should be doing a lot better. They could do better. Um, he doesn't say, all right, go out and tell people like, hey, get your act together like I've gotten my act together. He says, go out and be merciful. Show mercy. Uh, Brunner says this. He says, the first test of obedience to Jesus' ethic is not whether obedience makes one morally tougher, but whether it also makes one mercifully softer. Here's the question for us. Have I become mercifully softer since knowing Jesus? Uh, When people around you fail, what's the response? What's your gut response? Uh, Is it, you know, I told you so, or or criticism, or harshness? Or is it mercy? What's the promise with this beatitude uh, for the merciful? It's that they will receive mercy. This is saying that uh, we as people who have received mercy from Jesus will therefore show mercy to others. As it flows into us, it will flow from us to others. Blessed are the merciful. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, When Jesus talks about being pure, he's talking about having a heart that is fundamentally centered on the Lord. Um, this is showing us that following the way of Jesus isn't just some like behaviors that we do or don't do. It is in the depth of our soul, the very core of our being. It's at a heart level, which would be in direct opposition to the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day that were focused solely on external behaviors. And they were pros at this. They had it on lockdown, um, trying to appear as sort of super religious on the outside. They, they had it, but they were missing it on a heart level. Into this context, context, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who've made Jesus and his kingdom the most internal, central, guiding force in their life. And so here's the question that forces us to ask ourselves. Why do you follow Jesus? Um, If you consider yourself a Christian, why are you a Christian? Um, Are you captivated with who Jesus is? Are you struck by the beauty of Jesus and his character. Um, Do you follow Jesus to get more of Jesus? Or is it something else? Maybe just like a box that you check, you feel like you should. 
or kind of rounds out your life's picture, your life's resume to maybe go to church and be a Christian. What's the promise of this beatitude? It says, for they shall see God. Um, Being a Christian is not about behavior modification. Pharisees were pros at this. Being a Christian is about having a heart that loves God. And do you see how that then actually shapes our behavior towards others? Um, How we treat other people will be totally transformed when our hearts are grounded and centered on Jesus. When our our hearts are purely centered on Jesus, um, we can then stop using people to meet our needs that only Jesus can meet. Um, If you're married, this allows you to let your spouse simply be your spouse and not be your Savior because Jesus is your Savior. It reframes how you think about friendships, how you think about marriage. Um, It allows you just to appreciate your friends for who they are, not try to make them into a Savior that will meet your every need. Blessed are the pure in heart. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. So I grew up with an older brother who's two years older than me. And um, we became really good friends when we were teenagers. Prior to becoming teenagers, we fought like crazy. Like physically fought. Like, like punched and kicked each other a lot. And so my mother had a few different forms of trying to be a peacemaker with us growing up. Um, when we were little, you know, peacemaking would mean that she would physically grab my brother and I and separate us when we were little. As we got bigger, she couldn't do that anymore. And so uh, peacemaking for her meant she would try to preserve her furniture in her house. And so she would simply tell us to take it outside. She wouldn't even tell us to stop. She would just say, take it outside, boys. Don't do that in the house. Don't break anything. Break each other. Don't break the house. Go outside. Um, The upside-down characteristic that Jesus calls us to here is peacemaking. And the peacemaking that he's talking about is is much more than simply just trying to, like, pull people apart, keep them from punching each other. It is holistic. Um, One commentator says you could use the word holemakers, as in W-H-O-L-E, holemakers, in place of peacemakers. It's holistic in this sense. Um, The call is that we would be uh, people who participate in God's work of making all things new. Um, Practical things like fighting to end human trafficking. That's the work of a peacemaker. Um, Reconciling with a distant roommate when you could just let things grow distant. That's the work of a peacemaker. Um, A spouse, when there's tension, breaking the silence with words of repentance and and conversation. That's the work of a peacemaker. Um, Building relationships with kids at school who are very different than you that you wouldn't normally associate with. That's the work of a peacemaker. Peacemakers are reconcilers. And the promise that Jesus gives of this beatitude is that we would become sons of God. Which, it makes sense because it's only by the peacemaking that Jesus did on the cross that we can be reconciled back to God to be called a son or daughter of His. And so it's in light of His peacemaking that we then become peacemakers with other people and in the world around us. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, Jesus is saying that blessed are you when you're persecuted because you're living in a righteous way. Because you're living in the way of Jesus. Um, And for some Christians around the world, um, they risk prison. Because they're Christians. For just following Jesus. They might get arrested and go to prison. Um, 
Pew Research says that 75% of the world's population live in areas with severe religious restrictions imposed upon them. 75% of the world's population. That's not necessarily the case in our context. But it's always something we should expect. John Stott says this about following Jesus. He says, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it's therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, he says, it is a joy and a token of His grace. So he's saying that, that following the way of Jesus means that you will be persecuted, you will suffer. Jesus did, He was. We're followers, we will too. But there's this deep joy, this token of grace in it. And the promise in verse 12 is that the kingdom of heaven will be ours. Actually, that heaven awaits. Because Jesus' life did not end with suffering and death. But He actually rose again from the grave. He really walked out of the tomb. He ascended back into heaven where He sits as King. And so what gives us joy in the midst of persecution and suffering, both in maybe being marginalized in our context because of our faith, or in like the face of life-threatening persecution in other contexts. It's happening with our brothers and sisters. Um, the, the joy is the guaranteed hope that awaits us. An eternity with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Where there's no more persecution, no more suffering. Only glory. These are the Beatitudes. Um, he really comes out swinging with sort of an upside-down way of thinking about following Jesus. Um, this is the upside-downness of the way. But let's not miss the one leading the way. This is the third and final heading. Let's not miss the one leading the way. It would be very easy to be overwhelmed by these, this list of Beatitudes as we leave here. Um, or maybe really excited about this countercultural way of living that Jesus is calling us to. Maybe it doesn't overwhelm you. Maybe it fires you up. You think, yes, I can't wait to go and live this out. Um, and to think that the main thing is that we would live differently. Um, where we'd all go to lunch thinking mostly about our own behavior. But the goal is that we would all go to lunch today. Not thinking mostly about our own behavior, but thinking mostly about Jesus. Of course our behavior is important. That's the point of this whole Sermon on the Mount. But it's only when it's flowing from a love for Jesus. Are you able to look at this list of Beatitudes and see how beautiful Jesus is? I remember one of my seminary professors telling us um, about a time that his wife was having some health issues. And they were, um, when he was saying this, they were probably late 60s, maybe early 70s. And due to his uh, wife's health situation, um, she wasn't able to put her own shoes on. And so anytime they were to leave the house and go anywhere, um, my professor would, he was telling us he would... Um, get down on his, on, his, on his knees. He would kneel before his wife at the entryway of their house. And he, you know, he was, um, he had some slow physical things about him. And, and so this was a process, as it is for most of us, just to get down and kneel and do something like this. But he would kneel down in front of his wife and, and, and very slowly um, put on her socks for her one sock at a time. And then he would put on a shoe, one shoe at a time. He would tie the shoes um, for her and and uh, and he said, you know, one time he was doing this, he was kneeling down in front of his wife, and she looked down and really sweetly said, you know, it, it kind of feels like you're proposing to me all over again. And he and he, he responded and he said something amazing to her, like, you know, I would marry you again in a heartbeat. They just loved each other so much, and you could hear it in the way that he told this story. Um, his act of kneeling down and putting on his wife's shoes. That wasn't the main thing. 
It was just a, a sort of a natural outworking of how much he loved his wife. He would do whatever he could to serve his bride. Not out of some strict sense of duty, but because he loved her. This was his wife. Um, what's really on offer to you is not just an intriguing set of countercultural behaviors. Um, what's on offer to you this morning is a love relationship like you have never experienced before. One where you receive love from Jesus, where you feel what it's like, maybe for the first time, to feel delighted in, um, to be cared for, to be sung over. And that you would love Him in return, where um, the thing you want most is not what Jesus can give you, but it's Jesus Himself. This is the love relationship on offer to you this morning. And it's a relationship that you can begin today by embracing your unworthiness. By surrendering your attempts to earn your way in and just say, Jesus, you really do love me. And I love you too. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need a love like this. We need to be reminded that you do love us like this. Our hearts are so prone to be hardened and to be self-deceived to where uh, we forget that you love us. We forget that you delight in us. I pray that you'd remind us of that this morning and that we'd be captivated with the beauty of who you are as we look at these beatitudes, as we look at your character and even the character that you're calling us to. And that we would respond by following you in this upside down way, not to try to prove something, not to try to earn something, but because we really love you. And we really are a people loved by you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.